0: We give thanks, Father, that uh, this truth is both accessible as well as fulfilling. We pray that your spirit would use that truth in our lives to purge from us sin, causing us to be convicted of the very sins that we commit, that we might confess them and repent of them. And it would teach us holiness in our own lives, but also, Lord, how to... Subdue the earth and fulfill it to the glory of your Father, our Father. And we pray, Lord, that you would direct us by and through your Spirit to that end. We thank you that the Scriptures themselves teach us of the importance of the history has been preserved because indeed, Lord, you are the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. And in that, we you take your comfort. Bless your people now as we study this passage. Warn time. May you notice the summer, and to love and good works and the access in Christ. Amen. Amen. Friend, this is what we call Reformation Sunday, the Sunday before uh, the 31st of October when uh, Martin Luther nailed the 95 theses to the door of the Wittenberg Church. Tomorrow marks the 499th anniversary of that Next year, the 500th anniversary. Our sister church in Savannah, Georgia, Independent Presbyterian Church, uh, and I know that's not small, Independent Presbyterian. There's reasons for that. One of those reasons I'm telling you later. So they're going to have a a conference next year in March uh, celebrating the 500th anniversary. On this day uh, for next year. I think they're having it in March because they suspect there will be so many uh, celebrations right right around October 31st that uh, they might not have a good attendance if they wait until October. Today, I'm going to recount some of the events that that took place around uh, the nailing of those 95 pieces to the Woodford door. But in addition to those considerations, I'd like for us to consider the paradigm of change God has crafted both in creation as well as in his providential history of redemption that relates to Reformation. And lastly, I want us to consider the implications of God's paradigm for the future of the Church. So let's begin with a little historical survey. Reformation in the Church did not begin on October 33, 1517. Um, That's not when it began. It began many, many centuries before that, the Reformation that we speak of during the 16th century. And in fact, in the course of the church's history, and I mean not just since Christ's resurrection, but beyond, before that, the church, God's people in the Old Covenant went through many Reformation's, over the centuries, as they as God unfolds His history to mankind, uh, the Book of Judges is a uh, is a book filled with reformation. Uh, we don't see it that way; we see it filled with uh, unfaithfulness and judgment. But throughout that book, from from generation to generation, the Book of Judges, we see repentance by the people of God. That God has blessed them, then they become complacent in their faith or presumptuous. Either way, God judges them, humbles them once again, and they repent again. And so, reformation is cyclical through the book of of the book of Job. and so is the case throughout Israel's history. Uh, some kings in Israel were unfaithful as was, then David was a faithful king, then Ishmael was an unfaithful king, and then so on and so forth, up and down, and up and down. And so Reformation happens almost cyclically through Scripture, but it's heading toward a culmination. When we get to the New Testament, what's happened in the, in the people of Israel in the New Testament? Well, they, they turned the law upside down. It has become a means by which they can check off a box to please God. Or, as Shea points out from the, the hymn that we sang earlier, the somehow glorifying God in their debt by doing this checklist, as though God, did, did, did God owes them something for their obedience. God owes there there no one anything for their obedience. Obedience should be expected, right? You know, let me ask this in parents. You, when you deal with the children, what, what's expected in your house? Obedience <coughs> disobedience. You, you expect obedience, right? You, sometimes you reward them for that, but that's the normal way of living, right? We expect obedience. We don't expect them to live. We, we do expect them to fall away from obedience only because on the scriptures teach that us that happens. But we expect obedience, you know? Well God expects obedience from his creation. It be obedient to him, but the Israelites, in the way of Christ, had left the obedience of, of believing by faith in the Messiah would come underneath people and rather embrace the notion that just keeping the law was sufficient to please God. And God overturned return that, did he not? Did he not overturn that in Christ? Christ comes and preaches to the people of Israel who large and large measure of And as you read through the Gospels, you notice that the Gentiles, the Samaritans, and those outside of the covenant people are the ones often that are flocking to hear His message. Because He didn't bring a message just for the covenanted people, though that message is there, and we're going to look at that a little more closely in the book of Romans here in a few moments. But He brought a message for the entire world When he's at the temple, he chases out the the money changers. What does he say to the money changers when he chases them out? this This was to be a house of prayer for all nations. That's what the temple was to be. A house of prayer for all nations. And you've made it a den of thieves as he chases out the money changers. Well, a house of prayer for all nations? The temple was pointing to Christ Himself. The house of prayer is not our Lord, the, the One who intercedes for us daily. Who in Him we intercede for the world as well. A whole, We the body of Christ? Are we not the house of prayer for all nations and from all nations? Indeed. But the people of Israel had turned their back on that. And so reformation was necessary. Reformation was necessary to reform what had been made wrong by the hands of men, reformed by the very hand of God. And Jesus Christ did that by and through his death on the cross and his resurrection for our justification. Well, reformations happened like that throughout the centuries and millennia, even in the first millennia. Toward the end of the first millennium, uh, there was a thing called the Cluny movement. Now, the Cluny movement has nothing to do with George Clooney. Uh, it, spelled differently, C L U N Y. The Clooney movement, and it was a it was a reformation that happened in the began in the ninth century, late ninth century, and continued up until uh, the early part of the eleventh century. And it was in the monastic orders that it actually happened. But what these monks had come to realize was that the church had become so intertwined with secular humanism in the culture that it had lost its identity to the ordinary means of grace and so they promoted the use of the ordinary means of grace now they also promoted some things that we wouldn't agree with so i don't want to to make make it as if the Clooney movement was the the precursor to the reformation as we know it but it was an effort by the people of God, to throw off the shackles of secular humanism and embrace the truths of the Scriptures, albeit a, a, a less potent effort than would come during the Protestant Reformation. Well, in the 13th and 14th centuries, there were evidences beginning in those two centuries for the work that would happen in the 16th century, fifteen seventeen when Martin Luther would na- nail the 95 Theses to the Wittenberg door. For instance, Thomas Bradwardine was teaching in a seminary in England. Do you recognize that name? Thomas Bradwardine? I doubt a few of you do. He was John Wycliffe's mentor. Does that name ring a bell? The morning star of the Reformation? John Wycliffe? Many of you know that name, but you didn't know the name of his mentor, did you? Thomas Bradwardine. Do you know John Wycliffe embraced the notion of salvation by grace through faith at the feet of Thomas Bradwardine? Who who rediscovered it in the Scriptures. Of all places, the Scriptures. And Thomas Bradwardine began to teach that in the church church. And he taught John Wycliffe. And it emboldened John Wycliffe so much, he today still has the title The Morning Star of the Reformation. But the Morning Star has someone before him. Just as you and I have someone before us in our faith that has shared justification by grace through faith with us, so did John Wycliffe. His name was Thomas Bradwardine. Well, what about John Huss another century later? John Huss, a bohemian. He would lose his life for his steadfast preaching of justification by grace through faith. That men are saved by grace, not by works. He would promote that and teach it faithfully after having read John Wycliffe, who lived a century before him. It was there that he came to grips with what Thomas Bradwardine had taught John Wycliffe. And he went back to the Scriptures and combed the Scriptures for those same truths. Well, John Huss then would provide many writings, the the Roman church uh, trying to, to, to squelch this new thought, new yet old thought, original thought, from the Apostles, trying to squelch that, gathered up John Huss's books and burned them, ultimately would kill John Huss himself for his teachings. But some of those teachings would be preserved. Some of those books would be preserved. And yet another century later, they would fall into the hands of the men who we owe our heritage to in faith, the Presbyterian heritage, the Reformation of the 16th century, beginning with Luther. Luther was an obscure monk in a small town in Germany. Not really any body of importance. But he became so infuriated with the Pope's desire to build a cathedral in Rome at the, on the backs of the church people who had sent out Tetzel as, many, as well as other men to sell indulgences to the parishioners hoping to spring their, their relatives from, from uh, uh, purgatory. They would collect up these monies and they would sell them indulgences. And indulgence was a promise to spring the, the uh, relative from purgatory that the pope would make. That, that was his promise. And these people would buy them up in hopes of springing. They bought them up. They bought up a lie. And Luther was infuriated. Nearly all of the 95 theses have to deal with the sale of indulgences and their consequences on the church. And on the eve of All Saints Day, All Hallows Eve, Martin Luther nails that theses to the door of the Wittenberg Chapel and sparks a fire that still burns today. Now, I've said all that to say this, Trinity Presbyterian Church is a branch on that limb called the Reformation that reaches back not just to Martin Luther, but all the way back to the apostles and their teaching. Here again the words of the writer of Hebrews. Remember your leaders. Those who spoke to you the Word of God. Consider the outcome of their faith and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Well, there's a paradigm that's spoken of in the scriptures over and over again. Several paradigms that speak of branches and trees and the importance of those things in the in the in the the kingdom of God. In fact, in Matthew's gospel, in the kingdom parables, one of them is about a tree. That comes from a very small seed that grows up to such an extent that the birds of the air, the nations of the earth, flock to it for comfort and shade. That's the description, one of the descriptions of the kingdom of God in Matthew's Gospel. I believe it's chapter 10, but I could be wrong on the chapter there. Well, that tree is spoken of many times in the Scriptures. It's spoken of in in the earliest parts of Scriptures. In the Garden, it's the tree of life, which reappears in the last chapter of the book of Revelation as Christ Himself, the tree of life. That's the tree that Adam and Eve were kept from after they sinned by the cherubim that were placed at the entrance of Eden. It was so that they couldn't get to the tree of life. But that tree would come to earth in the person of Jesus Christ, who died on the cross, rose again for our salvation, who rent the veil of the temple. That thing that kept man away from God, the the presence of God in the temple. Jesus Christ at His death rent the veil, tore it in two, so that we could now come into the very presence of the living God. Jesus made life for us possible in Him. And those who abide in Him will have eternal life. And not just any kind of life, but Jesus says, I've come to give you abundant life. Abundant life. There are two passages that I'll read from today during communion. One is John 15 and Romans 11. These are passages that are familiar to our congregation because I've spoken of them often. And there in those two passages, Jesus describes those who make up His church as branches in the tree of life, So let's turn first to John chapter 15, and I'm going to read for you the first 13 verses. John chapter 15. Jesus said, "I am the vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit he takes away, and every branch that bear fruits, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit." And they gather them and throw them away into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so you will be my disciples. As the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in His love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may remain in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment to you, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than than to lay down one's life for his friends. Brethren, Reformation is costly. It's costly. Notice at the beginning of this passage, Verse 2, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, He takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, He prunes that it may bear more fruit. We live in a time when we think that the Christian life should be one of ease and uh, absent any kind of trials or tribulations. Well, I beg to differ with that. I don't think the Scriptures teach us that. And I don't think you hear that too often here at Trinity. But notice here that, that those branches that are bearing fruit have to be pruned that they might bear more fruit. Do you think when a, when a, when a branch is pruned, not too many of us are, have spent a lot of time doing this, tending trees. I don't think we have any arborists in our congregation. But to prune a tree is something that I I have to do it in my yard. I don't do it nearly enough, but I have to do it. I I can't imagine that it's a pleasant thing for the plant to cut off parts of its branches. That it might bear more fruit. And in the church, we are the branches. Jesus is the vine. God's the vine dresser. And parts of our lives have to be pruned that we, we might bear more fruit. That's what God desires of us. That means we're going to go through difficulties. It's, it's promised to us by the words of Jesus. You're, you're going to go through difficulty. And it's, it is for your good. So that you could bear more fruit. For the kingdom. Now are those there are those who bear no fruit. And God cuts them off and they wind up in the fire. Notice that they are part of the tree. They are part of... The church, and they don't bear fruit, and God prunes them from the tree, and they become objects of destruction and wrath. There are those in the church as well. Now, turn with me to Romans chapter 11, and I want to read to you verses 7 through 24. It's a little longer passage. Paul's writing of a similar circumstance, the vine and the vine dresser. Only here it's an olive tree. Romans chapter 11, beginning in verse 7. What then? Israel has not obtained what it seeks, but the elect have obtained it, and the rest were blinded. Just as, as it is written, God has given them a spirit of stupor, eyes that they should not see and ears that they should not hear to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a recompense to them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they do not see and bow down their back always. This is a description of how God is dealing with the people of Israel who had received the good gifts of God and yet hadn't seen what was given to them. They hadn't seen justification by faith. They saw it in the works that they did. Verse 11, I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? Certainly not. But through their fall to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Because of the fall of Israel in that very first century, justification came to us, the Gentiles. Remember, Jesus said, as I mentioned before, that the temple was supposed to be a a house of prayer for all nations, and they had made it a den of thieves. Because God divorced Himself from Israel, justification came and salvation came to we who are Gentiles. Verse 12, Now, if their fall is riches for the world, the Gentiles... And their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? Listen to what he says. For I speak to you, Gentiles, inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. If by any means I may provoke to jealousy those who are my flesh and save some of them, he's speaking now in that verse of the Jews. For if their being cast away is the reconciling of the world, What will their acceptance be but life from death? For if the first fruit is holy, the lump is also holy. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. If some of the branches were broken off, and you being a wild olive tree were grafted in among them, and with them became partakers of the root and the fatness of the olive tree, do not boast against the branches. But if you do boast, remember that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. You will say, then branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. Well said. Because of unbelief, they were broken off. And you stand by faith. But do not be haughty, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, He may not spare you either. God did not spare those who were of unbelief on the branches. He cut them off that he might engraft us in but guess what don't don't assume too much here if god judged them for unbelief will he not judge you as well he cut them off and they were part of the root and the branch he pruned what was not fruitful that he might bring in something that was more fruitful the paradigm here brethren is growth maturity and fruitfulness that is the expectation of God in His church. And when these attributes are not evident, cultivation takes place. God prunes away the unfruitful and replaces it with that which bears more fruit. And it seems to be cyclical as I began the sermon with those, the examples of, uh, in the book of Judges. It seems to be cyclical. 500 years ago next year, Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses to the door of the Wittenberg Chapel. Let me ask a question. Or a couple questions. Was the Reformation successful? Was it successful? Has it continued to mature? Has it continued to be fruitful? I wonder. I think it has in some respects. The mere fact that we sit in a room and everyone has a Bible on his lap or her lap or on their phone, I think is part of the fruit of the Reformation. The Word of God is accessible, at least to Western Europeans and North Americans. There are places in the world where it's still not accessible. But for us, My office, my home, it's littered with Bibles. My guess is your homes aren't too much different. That's a good thing. The fact that we are educated, that we can even read those Bibles, is the fruit, in large measure, of the Reformation. Accessibility, the ability to read what's there, the ability to worship in freedom... We still have for a while yet. But the mere fact that we can worship in freedom as our conscience dictates us to us, hopefully from the Scriptures, that our conscience are informed by the Scriptures, that too is a fruit of the Reformation. These are th- successes that have come from the Reformation. But let me ask this. Has it swept over the entire world? You would think in 500 years that would be plenty of time for that that tree to mature and bear lots of fruit, be pruned back that it might bear more fruit, and that that reach would have encompassed the earth. I think that it hasn't. That's my assessment. That's not to say that I despise the Reformation. I'm, grateful for it but I want us to consider this reformation happens over and over and over again both in the scriptures and the history of God's providential redemptive work it happens again and again and again I don't think the reformation of the 16th and 17th century is the high point of the church that may surprise some of you I think the high point is yet to come I want to see a reformation that dwarfs that one. I want to see the Muslim nations on their knees before God asking for forgiveness. I want to see the communist nations on their knees asking God for forgiveness. I would like to see a nation that aborts 40 million babies and more on its knees asking God for forgiveness. To me, that reformation still has to come. We have much to give thanks for. But there's still much more to be done by the Spirit of God working in the world through His people. Brethren, it was the purging of unfruitful branches in the 16th century that brought about substantial change. The reformers were men who went back to the faith of their fathers and our fathers, who sought truth, as our passage tells us. They sought that truth from the apostles who were taught that truth from Christ himself. So let's go back to our our passage. Remember your leaders. Now, but before I go here, I've got to be a little bit careful. This passage is really speaking to the church to say, remember the, ones, the leaders who are in your presence. That's truly the, the thrust of the passage, so I don't want to mislead you there. The, the writer of Hebrews is saying, remember the elders, look at, it, look at their lives, see if they're faithful men, if they are worthy of following, and see what they're teaching you from the Scriptures. But I think that principle stretches over the millennia. And I I say that because of verse 8. We'll get to there in a minute. But remember your leaders, the apostles who taught you the ordinary means of grace. Those who spoke to you the Word of God. I think that's a qualifier that we can't dismiss. These have to be faithful men to the Word of God. We have to be Bereans in this regard. When they say something to goad us to righteousness, does it fit with what the Scriptures teach? And if it does, yield. You're yielding to the Word of God. Consider the outcome of their life. Consider the outcomes of the apostles in their lives. The men throughout the ages who promoted Christianity to the point of death in some cases. Men like John Huss. Men who gave their lives for their brethren. Consider the outcome of their lives and imitate their faith. Brethren, we have good examples to imitate. Faithful men who embraced the Word of God and held it high understanding they were sinners, winsome in that regard, having confessed their sins and repented, but holding high the Word of God. The Word made flesh who dwelt among us and we beheld His glory as of the only begotten Son of God full of grace and truth, Jesus Christ. And then verse 8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. This isn't something that we need to shrivel up in cowardice and say, oh, maybe this doesn't work for our day and age. No. Remember the men who believed this during the time of Christ. And remember the men who believed it all the way up through the day you were born. Look at the men who still believe it today and look around you at the providences of God being worked out both in your life and in the lives of your family members and friends to bring you to faith and to to strengthen you in that faith and trust that that will be the case forevermore because that's the promise of the living God. That's the legacy of the Reformation for us. It's still happening. It began, I think, in earnest when Christ came. And it has over the centuries, over and over, cyclically come and gone when men have, been, have not have been faithful and then unfaithful, and God restores it, and He continues to restore it, and it grows. What was a little seed? Parable of the tree, kingdom as a tree. What was a little seed? 120 people. Acts chapter one. Eleven apostles at that time, till they appointed another. Eleven apostles. 120 people a little bit larger than this group at our church, God has blossomed into a great tree that is still growing, that bears fruit, that He prunes that it might bear more fruit. And you are the branches. One last application. And I have to ask a few questions by way of application. What needs to be pruned from your life that you might bear more fruit? I read in John's passage 15 that every one of us has to be pruned that we might bear more fruit. What does God have to cut away in your life? Ask that question and be serious about it. What's in your life that has to be taken out that you might bear more fruit? Is it sin? Is it envy? Is it cowardice? The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, and the pride of life, do those ring a bell? Be honest with God. Ask God to prune that stuff from you that you might bear more fruit that He might be honored, that His kingdom might be growing as it ought. I want to pray that prayer more often in my own life. What has to go? And am I willing to let it go quickly? And am I going to be diligent before God to see it gone, asking Him over and over to purge these things? Ask yourself that question. And in doing so, remember Romans 11. Don't look upon this in the wrong way. Just because God has shown you grace doesn't mean He won't cut you off if you don't remain faithful to Him. Ask God to be faithful always. And ask Him to give you love for those in the church who are struggling with the same kinds of things being pruned. And encourage them. Encourage them to persevere in their being pruned. Uphold them in prayer. Intercede for them as Christ does for us. That they might bear more fruit. And then lastly, we live in an age where our faith is tested. Guess what? That's not new either. We're going to see more and more of that. Okay. Okay. We need courage. Pray for God to give you the courage to be a fruit bearing branch in the midst of secular humanism, which is all around us. Because the Bible tells us they will know us by our love. Those outside the church will know that we are the called of God by our love for one another but also for them who are outside. Have courage to love your brother as you ought. Being willing to give up your life for them. And not all of our brethren are lovely, are they? Sometimes it's hard to love a brother or a sister in Christ. But that doesn't mean we ought not to do it. God calls us to do it. In fact, God calls us to love our enemies. Isn't that what Christ did? While we were yet enemies of God, Christ died for us. So we have to persevere with one another. But not only that, that we would pursue those outside the tree that they might be engrafted in. The wild ones. The wild olive branches. How many of us go after the wild olive branches? And do it with diligence. I confess I don't do it well enough. But I want that kind of courage. Brethren, Reformation is a new beginning. And it happens over and over again. It doesn't happen just once. 500 years ago. It's happening even today. And you are part of that Reformation. Embrace that. And ask God to lead you in it. Let us pray together.